Broadcasting from the business capital of the world, this is the Podcast Business News Network. This gentleman has achieved so much in helping others move their careers forward by teaching them. And he's got so many accolades, just a a phenomenal guy as a geography educator. And he was born in Louisiana and moved on to receive a PhD and has done so much, so many different awards. Uh, The Marquee, the Albert Nelson Marquee Lifetime Achievement Award, the who's who of top professionals. He's our diamond of the decade. And we're going to learn so much more from him. William C. Rents joins us on the program. William, welcome back. How are you? Oh, I'm fine this morning. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. I did. I certainly did. Yes, it was nice. It was uh, the word that comes to mind, peaceful. It was peaceful, which oh, good. is needed <laughs> from time to <laughs> <Yes>. time. <laughs> How about you? Oh, fine. My, my brother and sister-in-law came, and there were just the three of us, and uh, we had a nice Thanksgiving and uh, ate too much, of course, but you're supposed to do that on Thanksgiving, I understand. That's that's the job. The uh, What do they call it? The, the tryptophan, uh, I guess, coma, where you, you fall asleep after the turkey. If you get that, you've done it right. Well, you don't know if it's a tryptophan or if it's just eating too much. <laughs> <laughs> Eating's or the a, two together. <laughs> eating is a lot of work. There's no doubt about that. Uh, so you have taught so many students geography and inspired them. Uh, also, some of them to go into that line of work. I would really love to to look at the types of geographers that exist, because I think it's a, uh, a misconception as to what uh, they may overall be, right? Oh, yes, there is. Um, geographers are interested in interaction between various aspects of our cultural, social, economic, and physical environment. Uh, In other words, an economist will look very carefully at the economic factors, but a geographer would look at climate and social factors and economic factors and bring them all together. in, 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 in a, in a uh, complete uh, analysis of all of them. Uh, so it's, it's a unique discipline in that regard. So let's, let's look at some of the different types of geographers that might exist. I know there, there could be some for oceanography, uh, taking care of the climate or observing that, and, uh, and, and many others, even economic geographers. Well, I, I would broadly, think. you might say there are two kinds of geographers. There are the physical geographers whose interest in work focuses more on the physical environment, climate, soil, uh, things like that. Then there is the cultural geography. Those are people that focus more on social matters and economics. And so there's a, there's that big separation. But all geographers are knowledgeable to some extent uh, in, in all aspects of the world. So a cultural geographer who focuses in on economics is still well aware of the role of the physical environment and vice versa. Mm. How about we go a little bit deeper? I mean, I love the ocean. Um, your, your thoughts on that, the, the geographers that study the ocean, I guess they work closely with marine biologists? They would close... They would work closely with marine biologists and oceanographers. In actuality, an oceanographer is more or less a geographer of the oceans. Most geographers focus more closely on the terrestrial parts of the world. So an oceanographer is actually a geographer who focuses in on the oceans. 
because there are special aspects of the ocean that differ from dry land, as you're well aware. I got to tell you, this is definitely opening my eyes to uh, to so much in the, the work that you do. I would even have to imagine, and I'm just thinking out of the box here, maybe uh, from a layman, but there's there's got to be a medical geographer that exists that looks at, you know, disease and how it spreads through different areas around a uh, city or a uh, state or even the world? Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I know one quite well. Uh, she was originally from Puerto Rico. Her specialty is medical geography. She looks at the distribution and spread of diseases. And uh, she currently lives uh, uh, in uh, Austin, Texas, uh, where she is still professionally active. So absolutely, there is uh, medical medical uh, geography. That is an area that I, I personally don't know much about. <laughs> yeah, well, it's out of our wheelhouse, but just even to know that they exist... Um... What about on the political side? Are there, you know, looking at uh, borders, you know, nationally and uh, internationally? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there are p- 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 you know, cultural geographers that focus in on the political aspects, and that not only includes international relations, but it also includes uh, internal matters. For instance, to put it very simply, if you map out the United States during a presidential election, you'll find that there are areas of the country that tend to vote one way and other areas that vote another and that ties in of course to a lot of cultural and economic uh, factors the deep south was historically uh, a democratic stronghold but uh, they were also basically conservative when it came to social matters and as a consequence in more recent decades the south has become much more a bastion of republican support whereas historically it was uh, very well known as a democratic bastion, the term Dixiecrat even referred to Democrats who were from the South. How interesting. In the past. Yeah, you, know, you, you really run deep. You you keep tabs on all of this. I find that uh, very refreshing. You? That's, that's one of the aspects of being a geographer. You have wide-ranging interests. Um, in other words, I was attracted into geography um, because I was interested in a lot of different factors. And so if a person finds themselves, a young person finds themselves interested in a lot of things, cultural as well as physical, geography might be an area to go for them. Uh, What about the data? And I guess it would apply to any geographical uh, study, but also predictions about using that data and predictions about how the environment will develop over time, different situations, scenarios. How does that look? Oh, that looks very good. Uh, That's one of the things that many geographers look at. In other words, as we develop economically and uh, the population goes up and so forth, what changes can be expected uh, in in our landscape? And I use the word landscape broadly to mean cultural as well as physical uh, aspects. What you said, the interest for you, uh, and I've said, we've talked about this in the past, that weather is one thing that's on your radar. Um, tell us about that, your, your affinity for that. Well, my primary interest throughout my whole life has been weather and climate. Hmm. Some of my, most of my early childhood memories from when I was four years old or whenever you can first remember had to do with weather events. Uh, and it was my interest in weather and climate that drew me into geography. 
Uh, in other words, I realized that uh, geography includes weather and climate and many other things, and my interests were broader. And so that's what drew me into, in, into geography. And it's also very interesting. You know the joke when the kids are in the car on a, on a long auto trip, and they say, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Sure. Uh, when I was a little kid, I never felt that way. I just enjoyed looking out the window at the passing landscape. I found that fascinating. Yeah, so, uh, interesting, and I, I could I could see that. Um, you know, thinking back to being a kid or having kids, being in the car and them looking out the window, and it's a whole fascinating world when you're a kid looking at that kind of stuff. Well, many kids don't find it that way. You know, are we oh. there yet? Uh, they they want to get to where they're going. They find sitting in the car confining. But to me, it was an opportunity just to view this vast world out there. And so I would say if. You have a young kid who likes to sit in the car and look out the window at the landscape. That person might be a geographer in the future. <laughs> well, sadly, nowadays, kids' faces are on devices, and they're not looking at the landscape, right? Well, that's a whole new problem that yeah. <laughs> affects a lot of society. For instance, can kids express themselves elegantly? Or is everything going to be very short sentences like when they're texting a friend? Um, uh, yep. And there are, other, there are other issues, too, that the kids get so, so caught up uh, in their, their cell phones that they don't uh, interact uh, socially or culturally. Uh, I've read that there are issues that way, but I don't know much about that, so I really couldn't say, except I've read that. Oh, it's true. It's true. And there are challenges even with teenagers, especially girls nowadays, uh, mental health challenges. Uh, and I have to believe it traces back to a lot of it, social media, because like you just said, there's no real social interaction. There is comparison and all of that. That's a, that's a whole different territory in podcasts. So we don't even go there, but, uh, no, that's a, you can get some experts to come in and talk about that interesting subject, but it does exist. No question about that. So over the years, in your study of geography and also teaching it, how has technology changed all of this? Oh, Lord. Um, well, in I terms of satellite that, images and things like that? Yes. The, the biggest effect on geography is the way we can sense the environment. Satellites are, of course, an obvious uh, uh, example of this. But there are many other other uh, aspects, better mapping techniques and uh, better sensing of temperatures and and uh, uh, human uh, movement and traffic control and so forth. And so it's, it's, it's simply a matter that like all disciplines, I think, are affected by advances in technology. And the big, big effect in geography is simply being able to sense the world better uh, than we used to be able to. I mean, at one time, the only thing you had was your eyeballs, you know? <laughs> True. Yeah, you're right. I mean, look look back in the day, there were geographers even hundreds of years ago. We'll call them oh, geographers. There were, there were geographers, and the ancient Greeks mm -hmm. uh, uh, had them. So, And one of them was, uh, he was in, he lived in Greece, of course, and he went down to Egypt, which is a more southerly latitude than, than Greece. And it was right at the time of the um, solstice in June, and he noticed that in Egypt, the sunlight at noon would penetrate all the way down to the bottom of a well. But in Greece, it would not 
there was a different angle. So he postulated that the world was round and Greece was further north, and therefore the sun was at a somewhat lower angle. And I think he was the one that calculated the circumference of the earth with remarkable accuracy. Can we discuss that for just a moment? What yep. what took place back in the day, and even even in far back as Greece, uh, how that was done? Um, they didn't have technology. Any thoughts on that? Well, in this case, it was simple observation. He saw the sunlight in the well in one place and sunlight in the well in another and realized it was an angular distance. He knew approximately the distance from Greece to Egypt, and he knew the angle that the sun seemed to be different between the two, and thus he could mathematically calculate the size of the Earth. He assumed the Earth was round. Uh, it wasn't Columbus. <laughs> People knew the Earth was round a long time before Columbus. Uh what about some of those things that were discovered back in the day that are impactful for for us in the present day? Uh, that part, I, I truly find that fascinating, how they were able to uh, navigate with any kind of technology, but they, they got the job done. Yes, uh, and remember that uh, ships were sailing at, at sea, um, and they had to navigate in, in certain ways. Uh, and, of course, uh, latitude, that is the distance north or south of the equator, was easy to calculate because, uh, you know, you just measured the angle of the sun above the horizon on certain days of the year. But longitude, the distance east or west, is completely arbitrary. There is no good way to mm. measure physically your longitude. You could do your latitude. You knew that if it was a certain day of the year, the sun was in a certain position relative to the equator, so you could calculate how far north or south of the equator you were. But longitude is completely arbitrary. There is no way to measure uh, longitude properly. And what it's done with is it's done with uh, uh, clocks. And uh, you know the, uh, the, in other words, if you know when it is noon in London, and you know, and wherever you are, you measure the sun at noon, then you know how far away in time you are from London, and then you can calculate your longitude. Uh, it's 15 degrees of longitude for every hour of time change. So, for example, oh. if it was uh, noon in London and it was 3 o'clock where you were, you knew you were three hours east of Lond London, and therefore it would be three times 15 or 45 degrees of longitude. Interesting. I never knew and, that that's how that was done. And so what the world did was <coughs> they created, <coughs> every country <coughs> had their own meridian, which is a, a, a line of longitude, uh, to measure their, to their mapping. And in the 19th century, they got together, mainly European countries, because they were making these decisions then, and they established a prime meridian. And that's a, the prime meridian runs through the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, England, which is just outside of London. And so the prime meridian runs from the North Pole through a specific spot at, at the uh, observatory to the South Pole. And then all longitude is measured east or west of there. 
<laughs> now, I, I I would imagine it would be subjectionable because you're traveling at a, a different speed. Everybody's going to be at a different speed. Speed doesn't matter. Um, hmm. It's it's the it's the motion of the Earth relative to the sun. So it doesn't matter how fast you're going. I'm trying to I'm trying to process that. <laughs> In other words, the the Earth rotates in 24 hours, and it goes through 360 degrees of of uh, longitude because you think of the Earth as a circle, and there are 360 degrees in a circle. And so, if there's 24 hours and 360 degrees, 24 divided into 360 is 15. So every 15 degrees of longitude represents one hour of time change. And it doesn't matter if you walk those 15 degrees of longitude or if you're flying in a supersonic jet. Relative to the sun, it doesn't matter. Because the earth and the sun are the two factors that are used in this. And this is what they use to determine uh, (coughs) distance, location, uh, way back in the day? Yes, they, they, the problem, uh, they didn't have any problem, as I said, with latitude, because that's north or south of the equator, so you could measure the angle from the horizon to the sun, and you would know how far north or south you were. The problem, of course, was, as I said, there was, it, longitude is completely arbitrary. You have nothing to measure it with. So you create this prime meridian artificially, and then by changes in time, you can measure the the longitude. Since it's 15 degrees for every hour, uh, you can uh, uh, figure out how far east or west you were. But that was very difficult before we had clocks. Uh, Sure. uh, But once clocks were developed, then it was possible by measuring time. uh, And there uh, there were arguments along these lines, too. There were some people that believed that clocks could not be built accurately enough uh, two or three hundred years ago to uh, keep an accurate uh, uh, time. The idea would be when they started to do longitude would be simply uh, if you kept a clock that was keeping time in London, the prime meridian, then you could measure that when the sun was highest in the sky wherever you were was noon, and then you could look at the difference in time, and then you would know how far east or west you were of the prime meridian of London. Uh, and so that's how it was done, and it was believed that about the time of the American Revolution, if I remember correctly, that clocks were not good enough that they could consistently keep a London time. And there were other uh, methods of determining longitude that were invented, and I'm sorry, I don't know the details of them, but I think it was based upon certain stars and and so forth. But uh, clocks did turn out to be sound and accurate, so they could keep proper time. Uh, You imagine back in the days of sailing ships, but you're pitching and rolling, you have a clock that's set to London. Is that clock good enough that despite the... pitching and rolling of the ship that it could keep London time accurately or whatever place sure. you're using as your prime meridian in those days. And, and that brings us to more variables. If that clock gets, gosh forbid, you know, you're in a major storm with, you know, 20 foot swells or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. But apparently the clocks did prove to be accurate enough that they would, did a pretty good job of figuring out, uh, 
longitude. Yeah, I can't imagine. You know, that's, they must have been, the, the clock um, clocksmiths, if you will, uh, must have been pretty amazing in designing those. To uh, Who, yeah. Whoever put together those clocks was a very good craftsman. Seriously, seriously. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and I'm certain there's more on this subject than I'm talking about. I'm not an expert on this. Uh, there are other ge- geographers that uh, focus in on these kinds of things, so they would have more details than I have. But basically, longitude was determined by time because every hour was 15 degrees of longitude. And if you knew the time on an established prime meridian, uh, such as uh, the London prime meridian, mm-hmm. then you could figure out how far east or west you were simply from the difference in time. I, I want to look at weather for just a moment because you're very much in tune with that. But have you, everybody talks about the, the, oh, the weather changes. It's always warmer now or colder now, global warming, all of that, all of that. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, climate change is part of the natural system. And of course, the glacier ages, which we all know about, were the, the extreme examples of this. But climate does naturally vary, and some of the reasons for this are not known. Uh, when you get into the discussion of human impact on climate, it, of course, becomes very controversial because it becomes political, politicized. But the fact is that human beings are having an impact on the climate in a variety of different ways. It just isn't the emission of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that's leading to warming, but there's changes in the reflectivity of the Earth's surface as we do farming or build cities. There are other factors. But gases we emit into the atmosphere are the most important. And my, my argument is that we know that carbon dioxide and certain other gases are greenhouse gases. That is, they trap radiant heat from the earth and then radiate it back down to the earth and so they do cause warming and so my argument would be that the warming that's being observed in the world today is at least in part due to human activity some of it may be natural Hmm. what percentage would you put on it you know natural versus uh human activity that's affecting our weather i would it would be a complete guess but uh I would say that it's probably at least 50-50 human, if not more. Hmm, interesting. Uh, but I don't know. You understand, this is a, oh, sure. this is just a, a, a guess on my part, not a, a scientific uh, fact. But it's something that you do study, William, and even to give it a number that high, yeah, that, that carries some weight. You know, if you said, well, it's maybe 20%, in my opinion, um, but you're higher than that. That, uh, you know, uh, what we're doing as humans is having an effect on our, our weather. There's, there's no question that the climate is warming. And uh, you have to ask why. And since we're putting gases like carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which are known to be greenhouse gases, you would have to explain to me why those gases aren't contributing to the observed warming. If you were a fortune teller, based on your experience and knowledge, if we were to fast forward 200 years, and again, this is purely conjecture, what do you think our environment or climate may be like? It's going to definitely be warmer. Uh, for instance, the, the steps that we're starting to take now in the United States and elsewhere to reduce the emission of these greenhouse gases, 
uh, will take a long time before they come to an end. And then, of course, they will remain in the atmosphere for a long time and, continue, and contribute to the warming. So I would guess if we were 200 years in the future, the world climate would be somewhat warmer than now. But unlike some of the doom and gloom that you hear, I think that the impacts would not be devastating. There are definitely going to be impacts uh, economically, environmentally, but uh, you know, sometimes people give the impression that civilization will collapse and, and the natural world will come to an end. No, it'll modify. It has to modify. And I would guess the average temperature of the world 200 years from now would be two or three degrees warmer than it is today, which doesn't sound like much, but environmentally on a global scale, that's a lot. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. Uh, I would think it would be more, but again, uh, it's, it, it's, it's going to vary. So you may see fluctuations, I'm, I'm guessing, in some areas. You know, wow, you know, this winter, it's eight degrees warmer than it has been in, in recent years, things like that. But, but what you find is, first of all, I'm assuming that the emission of the uh, greenhouse gases will come to an end in the next few decades. Uh, so the impact that humans will have on the temperature will be significantly less by that time. And, of course, you must remember that weather is variable. You can have a bitterly cold winter one year and a mild winter the next. Uh, it may be bitterly cold in the eastern United States and very warm and dry in the west. That, by the way, is a very common pattern. Usually when it's cold and stormy in the eastern U.S., it's mild and dry in the western U.S. and vice versa. Uh, so there are these natural just day-to-day -day changes in the weather. But what would happen is 200 years from now, these day-to-day -day changes would be occurring in a warmer atmosphere, and that will also have an effect on rainfall amounts, storm tracks, frequency and strength of hurricanes. There are many things that would be changed 200 years from now. It's fascinating. It, and this is where we live. You know, I, I think that people don't – people take it for granted. What, they take it for granted. Yeah. But again, I don't think that the changes – are going to be devastating. I don't think civilization is going to collapse right. because of it, but there are some areas of the world that will be badly impacted. For instance, if the climate is warmer, there'll be more glacial melting. Sea levels will be higher, mm. which means that islands that are close to sea level now may become uninhabitable. It means that coastal areas uh, in the United States, the tides will be higher because the ocean is a little higher. And so you'll have areas that are houses near the coast today that, that have, they wouldn't be there 200 years from now because the waves will be there. Uh, so there's going to be impacts, uh, no question about that. But overall, I think that human society will continue on pretty much as it has, for better or worse. Mm. I appreciate you and all your insight. I I could talk forever. We're out of time. Uh, it just it's fascinating. <laughs> you know, it is. It's our life. This is where we live. This is this is our environment. And I I truly believe that we should take more notice of that. Uh, but you want you want just beautification. You don't want ugliness. You know, just to put it right down to something very basic. Forgetting about climate change and other environmental changes, you want to look at a dirty landscape or a clean one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yep. William, great having you on with us. Uh, final question. If anybody wants to to contact you talking about this, maybe uh, 
some of your insight on yeah, maybe they're thinking about being a, a geographer. Is there a way to reach you? Yes. Uh, the best way to reach me would be through, I have a couple of, of email accounts, mountainweather at aol.com. Mountain weather, one word, no capitalized, just like weather in the mountains, mountainweather at aol.com will reach me. Excellent. Uh, Diamond of the decade, you are certainly one of them, and we appreciate you. And uh, thank you so much for being here today. You're very welcome. I enjoyed it very much. We'll be right back. Broadcasting from the business capital of the world, this is the Podcast Business News Network. When I was little, I didn't talk for a long time. I liked things to always be the same. Anything new or different would scare and upset me. I was very sensitive to lights and sounds. It was almost like I had bigger eyes and ears than everyone else. So I built secret hiding places where nothing could get in. I didn't like looking people in the eye. It made me feel uncomfortable. I'd throw big tantrums over little things like when my socks didn't match. Sometimes I'd do the same things over and over. Until one day, I found out I had autism. My family got me help. Slowly, I learned how to live with it better. You can see signs of autism in children as young as 18 months. Early intervention can make a lifetime of difference. Learn the signs at autismspeaks.org signs. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council.